Muy buenos días. How are you doing? Good morning, guys. Are we awake this morning? Hopefully. Uh, I'm Pastor David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at West Cabarrus Church. I'm the missions and assimilation pastor. I appreciate uh, Ryan giving me this opportunity of sharing God's word. If you're visiting for the first time, we thank you for being here. Thank you for deciding to come and worship with us. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Uh, those of you watching online as well, um, we, we ask you just to, uh, to stick six. That's what we're saying every Sunday. Uh, just uh, be with us so you can see our vision as a church. And we're called to glorify God uh, by making more and better disciples, starting with our neighborhoods and to the nations. And uh, we are going through the Gospel of John. And so the title of the series is Believe and Live. And that uh, title comes out of what John tells us in John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, where he says, And I've written these things so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we continue our study in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, uh, open to John chapter 4. If you don't, you can maybe ask the person next to you to see if he can lend you uh, a Bible. If not, you can use one of uh, your devices uh, and turn them on and use one of the apps. Uh, if not, we would love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we've got some in our foyer here in the, in the Welcome Center. You can pick one of those up as you leave. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. There are two things that we love in this place. First of all, we love the person of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we love God's Word. And so that's what we're going to open this morning, and we're going to listen to his voice and see what he has for all of us together. We're going to begin in verse 46. Um, our uh, passage starts in chapter 4, verse 40, 46, and goes through chapter 5, verse 18. But we're going to read till uh, uh, verse 10 in chapter 5, and then mention the verses that follow. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met up and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long period of time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. 
Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in thankfulness. As we have sung this morning, we are in awe of all that you are and of all that you have done. We come before your word this morning wanting and asking you to speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you that today you may work in their hearts in such a way where you may give them what they need. Lord, I pray for your disciples, your followers. As apprentices, we ask you, Lord, to help us learn how we should walk this life with you. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning and that we can come out of this place transformed by the power of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's interesting, as we continue studying the Gospel of John, we find that John desires to ask many questions. So with the portion and the sections that we're going to try to to go over this morning, we're going to find three important questions that John asks us, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that we must answer. But at the same time, as we look at these portions, we find important characteristics of Christ that should move us, that should just propel us to obey. Now, as you well know, last month, the Winter Olympics were celebrated in the country of China, in the city of Beijing. We love the Winter Olympics. Uh, we, we love with my wife to watch different events like figure skating or skiing. And, but every time the Winter Olympics uh, are celebrated or come around, there are two events that always come to mind. Uh, for me, they're important events. The first one you'll see on the screen was something that happened in 1988. Uh, well, yeah, it's the movie Cool Runnings, right? Oh, I love this movie, right? But the movie talked about uh, the, the Jamaican team, the bobsled team that uh, presented their team for the Winter Olympics. The movie is great, by the way. You remember that movie? Feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Come on, everybody, get up. It's bobsled time. You remember that movie? It's great. Come on. Are you guys here awake? Laugh. Come on, man. You guys are old. And I don't know if um, but the second thing that always comes to mind is a second event. And you'll see it on the screen as well. In 1980, in the city of Lake Placid, New York. <laughs> now, those of you who have my age or older will remember what happened in 1980. Now, if you're younger than us, then you can Google it and watch it online, right? Um, but this was unbelievable. A U.S. hockey national team made up of all of amateur players, college players, met up and played against the Russian national team who were made up of all professional players. I mean, they had played together for years. They had, uh, hadn't lost a, a game in I don't know how long. They had won four straight gold medals, and they were favored to win the fifth. But something happened that day. A miracle occurred. And they called it the miracle on ice. I, I, I never can stop thinking about Al Michaels that night. Man, he was excited. <laughs> You remember the last two, three seconds? Uh, he's doing the play-by-play, the, the, the play and, and he starts yelling, 
knowing that the game was about to end, he said, the U.S. is going to win. The U.S. is going to win. And then he said something very interesting. He said, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? What a question. And then the U.S. celebrated, went on to win the gold medal. That was truly a miracle, a miracle on ice. Now, as we study the Gospel of John and continue on here in chapter 4, we come to understand that the first question that John asks is not if we believe in miracles. No, no, his question is different. As we see this miracle, the second miracle registered in the Gospel of John, the question that John is asking us today is, are you willing to believe without miracles? Without miracles. This story is incredible because what we find here is that Jesus rebukes this noble man and the multitude that was around him. Instead of giving maybe kind words to the man that came to him asking for healing, Jesus rebukes him. It was kind of like last night. <laughs> I don't know how many Duke fans we have in this place. I'm not, I don't like Duke or North Carolina. I'm a Syracuse University fan. But last night was horrible, right? It's interesting that uh, Coach K, which was honored that night after the game, did something incredible. He stood there in front of everyone there, the whole crowd, and millions watching online like me, and he rebuked his players. He said, this is unacceptable, what happened tonight. Jesus desired to teach this noble man. This noble man that truly had a nominal faith, a traditional faith, a, a faith that was common. But that nominal faith was going to be transformed into an authentic faith, a real faith. And so we see this nobleman run to Jesus. Now, many scholars believe that this man was a Jewish army official in the Roman army. Th this man was a man of authority. This man led soldiers into war. Yeah, this man had the capability of taking his son probably to the best physician possible, the best medical doctors possible. I imagine that he had at his disposal all the medications needed for his son to get better, but nothing worked, nothing. And so something triggers in his heart, knowing that the only person that can make a difference in his son's life was Jesus Christ, no one else. And so this man was from Capernaum. Capernaum was 20 miles from the city of Cana. It says here, as we read beginning in verse 46, that Jesus went to Cana. Cana was where Jesus um, did his first miracle, transforming the water into wine. And so this man meets up with Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, Jesus, you need to come with me because you need to heal my son. I am in the middle of a crisis. I am going through a difficulty I can't withstand. I can't control. I need you to come with me. And Jesus rebukes the man. Like I said, instead of using kind words or kind uh, 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 phrases to be able to encourage this man, Jesus just tells them the truth. Uh, friends, Jesus always tells us the truth. Many of you maybe this morning are full of bitterness and, and don't like what Jesus says because Jesus always tells us the truth. Now, the interesting part about this man is that he stood put. He hung in there. I mean, this man did not 
turn around and say, oh, if you're going to treat me that way, then I'm going to leave. It was kind of like those Duke players last night, right? They were just, their head down and they stayed, they were there. He understood that he had a crisis in his hand, but he also believed that Jesus was the only one that could change it. You see, we tend to think that we can buy things or provoke things so my circumstance can change or my, 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 my situation can change. But the truth of the matter is there's nothing I can buy or purchase. There's nothing I can have, not even my family or my spouse, which are important, which are special, but they, not even them could give me what only Jesus can give me. We find that John decides to use seven public miracles and one private miracle in this Gospel of John to illustrate certain facets of the characteristics of the Messiah and the fulfillment of the scriptures. John tells us in chapter 20 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Jesus did many more miracles. But John takes these eight miracles and desires for us all to understand that what God, first of all, desires to see in us is authentic faith. God does not want us to live according to a traditional faith or an apparent one. What God wants us to do and live by is by a authentic faith. So that's why these miracles have two purposes. First of all, to demonstrate Jesus' deity, that Jesus was God. And the second thing, that Jesus, through these miracles, was going to fulfill the Old Testament, the scriptures, the prophecies. All over the book of Isaiah, we find that the Messiah, the one that was going to come, was going to, through his miracles, demonstrate his power, but his deity. And Jesus did that. It was St. Thomas Aquinas who said, for those with faith, no evidence is necessary. For those without it, no evidence will suffice. God's desire for you and I is not only to have a type of faith, but authentic faith. We see the verb form of the word faith in the Greek, which is pisteio. It speaks of someone who comes to a fully convinced recognition, first of all, recognition, first of, all of grace. A person who has authentic faith understands that all that he is and all that he receives is by grace. Grace upon grace. We find it from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. God's grace upon grace. The person who has authentic faith is one who is self-surrendering, is one that lets everything go. It's one that says, God, here is my life. Here is everything. I give it to you. This is what authentic faith looks like. I don't give pieces to God. I don't give what I believe I should give God. No, I give everything. That's what God wants. The person who has authentic faith is also a person who is fully assured in his trust in Christ. Faith is a conviction of the unseen, the facts and the evidence of the truth of the gospel and the conviction in God's promises. I love what Dallas Willard says about faith. He says, faith is confidence grounded in reality. And this is the faith that Jesus wanted to see. Jesus was being faithful and fulfilling the scripture. He was coming 
with the idea of demonstrating with clarity that he was the promised one. And what he wanted to find was authentic faith, but he didn't find it. Now in John chapter 2, we read a couple weeks ago that many believed in his name when they saw the signs, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. What I love about this miracle here in chapter 4 is that this noble man, this official, began with nominal faith. But as we finish the story, we see that he birthed authentic faith in his heart, in his life. Friends, this morning, I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what your relationship with Christ looks like. But Christ's desire this morning is for you to allow him to birth authentic faith in you. His desire is for you to understand, and first of all, that you should listen carefully to what he says. Listen carefully. This is what this man did. He listened carefully, and upon listening carefully, he then went. He obeyed. I I love this story because this man, even though he was rebuked by Jesus, stood ground. He didn't move. He hung in there. In the same way, Jesus is telling you the same thing. It doesn't matter what you're going through. What matters is what I can do, what Jesus can do for you. And Jesus says, I want you to stay. I want you to understand that my desire is for you just to listen to my voice and obey. This man, even though he was rebuked, he went back to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, you're the only one that can help me. Please help me. And Jesus Christ, that moment, that day, gave him a word of healing. Jesus is always faithful in giving us what we need at the right moment and the right time. And Jesus gave him a word of healing. It's interesting that in my translation in the ESV, it says that Jesus said, go, your son will be well. But in the Greek, the word is se'e, which What Christ was telling this man is, go, your son is alive and well. What Jesus was giving this man was present tense life. And Jesus today does exactly the same thing. It's not about the future. It's about today and what he can do. The word of Christ at this moment immediately delivered present tense life. Dear friends, we too are called to trust not only the power of Christ, but also the reach of Christ. This is what this miracle is teaching us. That we're called not only to understand that Christ has the power to do whatever he desires, but also that his reach is infinite. His His reach has no limit. We learn from the first miracle of the transformation of the water to wine that that miracle was an expression of Christ's power over time. The wine was ready to drink and enjoy. It didn't have to go through a process of fermentation. It was ready to enjoy. And that miracle shows us that Christ has power over time. And this miracle with the noble man shows us that Christ has power over space. Christ is limitless. And you, maybe this morning, are asking yourself, Christ, where are you? You might feel that Christ is far away or you might think your crisis is so large that Christ will never get there to do something about it. 
But he desires this morning for you to understand that there is no limit in his space. Now, this father left. It's interesting. This, this man didn't look at Jesus and said, how is this going to work? I mean, my son is 20 miles away. How in the world are, are you telling me that I have to turn around without you and go? Yes. Go. And he did. In no moment do we see that this man began to question the orders that Christ gave him. Why do we continuously go against the orders that Jesus Christ gives us? Why are we always questioning what Christ is asking for? If he's asking for us to do something, it means we should obey. And this man turned around and went back home. And we see in the passage that his servants came out and the servant says, your son lives. And he asked him the question, when did my son begin to get well? And they said the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon, the same moment the passage says that Jesus had given the word of healing. Listen, this story is powerful. Now, I think about what this noble man was thinking as he was traveling back home to Capernaum. I have no doubt that what this man was thinking about were the words of Christ. My son is alive. My son is well. This is what Jesus gave him. He, he gave him the word of healing. And, and that's why we too, as we walk as disciples of Christ, as apprentices of Christ, we should also repeat the words of Christ over and over again. We should repeat these words of Christ to ourselves always and especially in moments of difficulty. There's a great pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? <laughs> we must repeat the words of Christ. I never forgot years ago, one of my disciples, his dad was, was dying. His dad had had about three or four strokes and they had to amputate his legs. And so late at night, they called the ambulance because he was groaning, he was dying. And so immediately he called me and he said, Dave, can you come? The ambulance hasn't showed up. Can you come? So it was late at night. I went to that house. It was a house, just one room. They had dividers. And the father was in his bed and next to him was his daughter. She was crying. But when I walked into the house, I saw this young believer, this young disciple of Christ on his knees next to the sofa with his Bible open, praying and praying and praying. And when I walked into the room, I, I thought he was gonna get up from his position. I thought he was gonna say, Dave, thanks for coming, but he didn't. He just stayed there. That impacted my heart that night. And it talks a lot about what Jesus Christ desires for us to do. We too should always repeat the words of Christ in our minds and in our hearts and especially during our times of difficulty because these words will heal. These words will give us what we so much need. Now, what would I see about this story as well is that the crisis of this nobleman, God took it to make an impact for the gospel. Incredible. It says here that this man, as he heard his servants respond, 
It says, the passage says, he himself believed, but not only himself, his whole household. Can you see the impact that Jesus Christ did through this powerful miracle? The the, the powerful miracle of salvation. We see the impact of the gospel. Many of you know that my son was diagnosed with cancer five years ago, osteosarcoma. We're thankful because he just celebrated four years of remission. But one day he was laying in his bed going through treatments and he says, Dad, how can we help others? I said, maybe we need to start a foundation to be able to help families and people around us. So we did. Years ago, we had the opportunity of going to a oncology clinic in Honduras and you'll see a picture of our first visit. I've never been in a room where people connected just incredibly how their hearts were, were, were intertwined and connected like that day. You probably don't see her, but my wife was in that room. And Fernanda just began to tell her story. With tears in her eyes, she says, I understand what you all are going through. That room was full of mothers and there was one father. She says, I understand what you're going through because we went through the same thing. But in her tears, she began to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of the women there in that room came to Christ that day. That that scene, till this day, shakes my heart of understanding that whatever we confront should make an impact for the gospel. Anything I go through, anything that in my past I went through, anything that God allowed, God desires to take to make an impact for the gospel. That's your decision and mine. What to do with what God has done. This man saw the power of the gospel in his life and became a man with authentic faith. And God made a difference in his life. As we continue in our passage, we go to chapter five and we find the third miracle registered in the gospel of John. Now we find that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem. He goes during one of the feasts. We don't know which one, but he walks into the sheep gate. Very interesting. First time this gate is mentioned in scripture is in Nehemiah chapter 3. And it's interesting that John himself records John the Baptist as he saw Jesus Christ and said, there is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He, the Lamb of God, walked through the sheep gate. That was where shepherds would take the sheep to the temple. And it was there in the temple where they, they would sacrifice and present sacrifices before God. Jesus walks in. It is interesting that he goes to the pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda means house of mercy, house of grace. And the question that John asked all of us this morning with this miracle in chapter 5 is, are you willing to believe that he, Jesus Christ, can change your condition? Jesus Christ can change your condition. Now, the characteristic of the person of Christ that we find in this story is Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion. Now, uh, many believe that an angel would come down to this pool and stir the water. Whoever jumped into the water first would be healed. Others believe that it was simply an underground spring that would uh, erupt and disperse a sediment that would somehow heal people. We don't know. But we want to focus this morning on Jesus and what he did. It's interesting, 
we find in verse 6 that he focused on one man. It says in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, oh, I love that passage. Because what we find here is that Jesus knows everything, everything. Jesus knows it all. Jesus knew that this paralytic, this disabled man had been there for 38 years. Now, when we think about the pool, we have to understand that something was occurring, something was happening because that place was full with sick people. And Jesus looks at this man knowing his condition. This is comforting to our soul. That's why this morning I ask you, how long have you been suffering with your pain? Many of you maybe came this morning with a large burden upon your shoulders and your heart. Maybe like the noble son, you have a daughter or a son that has a physical disease, emotional disease, or, or spiritual. And you have come to Christ. You, you have asked him to do something about it, but maybe you haven't seen what you have desired. What, what, what Jesus is telling you this morning is that he knows everything. He knows what you're going through. He knows the crisis that has paralyzed you and me, and he is willing to do something about it. He is willing to heal. This is what impacted the, the, the Samaritan woman that we learned last week. I mean, she went back to Sikkar, her town, and began to, to publicize and communicate that she had met the Messiah, that she had deposited her faith in him. But it's interesting, as she began to call people, she said, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Jesus knows everything. This should be peace to our hearts. About a week and a half ago, I sat down with the man whose wife is ill, has been ill for about 10 years. This man was full of bitterness and, and anger. We spoke, he just communicated everything that he had within him. And at one point, he just got angry. And he looked at me and he said, Dave, why? Why has God allowed this to be a reality in our lives? Why? What do you say to a person when they say that? I looked at him and I said, I don't know why. But what I can tell you is that Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows what you're going through. And he desires to provide what your soul needs. We prayed together that day. We read some passages from the book of Psalm. I presented the gospel to him that day. Jesus knows everything. That's why I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He lays out everything that they confronted as servants, as messengers of the gospel. He says, we were afflicted at every turn. But then he says in verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast. The word downcast in the Greek speaks about those who are depressed, those who are lowly. He says, God is the one who comforts us. He revives us. He lifts us up. So listen. If you desire to see something change in your life, in your heart, go to God. Go to him. Go to Christ. He will give you the comfort that you need. Second thing that we learned through this miracle is how Jesus moved because of the need. No, not so much because of his comfort, but because of his need. And then the second thing we learn is that he does what he pleases. 
It's interesting that nine times in the Gospels, we find that Jesus was moved with compassion. Both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word compassion signifies an intense pain that comes from our inside, from our bowels. A pain, a pain that comes from the deep parts of our bodies. Jesus was led because of his compassion to this man. It's interesting that Christ decides to to heal this man, but this man had no faith. He had no faith. He wasn't saved because he believed. And this debunks, truly, this philosophy or this theology that says that because uh, we don't have enough faith, God doesn't give us what we want. This man had no faith. But Jesus set his eyes on this man and he says, I'm going to heal you. This is powerful. This is powerful. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And it's interesting. We find how this man responds. He responds like we do. This man was more worried about the things that he didn't have. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He didn't ask him if he had somebody that can bring him to the pool and put him in the water. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And many of us have not experienced the healing of Jesus Christ because we are trying to provoke things that we can't. We're still waiting for maybe somebody that can be our savior when Jesus says, I am your savior, I am your healer. I'm the only one because I came for the sick. I love what Jesus says in Mark 2 when he says, I haven't come for the righteous. I have come for the sick. I have come for those who need a physician. That's what Jesus said. That's why I ask you this morning, do you need a physician that can truly bring comfort to your soul? It's only found in Jesus Christ, and there's no other. If you are a disciple of Christ or a follower of Christ, I ask you a question this morning as well. Can people see the same compassion that led Jesus to do what he did in your life? Do people see truly That what is most important to you is to fulfill the purpose of God on earth. I love what David Platt writes in his book, Something Has to Change. He wrote this book. It was his journal during his trip in Nepal, in the mountains of Nepal, where they visited uh, towns and villages. These towns and villages were, were devastated because of the sex trade. I mean, families would give their daughters some being deceived others because they would receive money and they take these young little girls to the major cities in Nepal and also in Asia to sell. And so David is writing and pretty much crying every night. Tears would flow from his eyes and then all of a sudden as he finished the week he says, I've got to do something. And it's interesting that he writes, I've been working to turn those tears into tactics for making God's grace known among these people. Something has to change. I've shared this illustration before, but every time I think about it, it impacts my heart. In 1993, a photographer named Kevin Carter, freelance photographer, went to Africa and he took this picture. You'll see it on the screen. It's a picture of a girl who was dying of hunger. And there we see a black crow, a vulture, that was waiting for her to die to finally eat her up. 
And so Kevin Carter took the picture. Of course, he was riding in a van. The driver of the van said, Kevin, we've got to go. And so he grabbed his, his equipment, hopped into the van, and left. And he came to the U.S. Now, this picture was incredible. I mean, it was, it was on the front cover of all the magazines and newspapers in the U.S. I mean, this man won a Pulitzer Prize for this picture. He was, he was famous, and so they started to interview him. And in the interviews, they would ask him, what happened to the girl? What happened to the girl? <laughs> so he'd look at him and say, uh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, didn't you take the girl to an orphanage or to a family that might feed her? What, what do you mean you don't know? You didn't do anything? No, I didn't do anything. About eight months later, they found Kevin Carter in his apartment dead. He had committed suicide. And in his suicide letter, he put down, I'm doing this because I did nothing. I did nothing. Dear follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, apprentice of Christ, can people see the same compassion that led Jesus Christ to do what he did? It's interesting that Jesus did not go to the rich. He went to the poor. The rich came to him. Nicodemus, the young rich ruler, uh, Zacchaeus. The rich came to Christ. Christ went to the sick, to the poor. What about you? What about me? Is my life being led by that same compassion? Understanding that tears do nothing. It's doing something about those tears. Making a difference for the gospel and what Jesus can do in lives of people. That, that is what we're called to do. I love what Proverbs 21, 13 says. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And not be answered. As we continue, we finish up with the portion that we did not read. But we find here a third question that John asks. You see, the question that John asked through the conversations that we find between the man who was healed and the religious leaders and the man who was uh, healed in Christ, the question that John asks, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is are you willing to believe that Jesus is your rest? The characteristic of Christ that we find in this portion is that he is always at work, always. It's interesting, in verse 16, these religious leaders... It says there that they began to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's incredible. When you do a study of the Gospels, no one refuted the miracles of Jesus. No one. Nobody said, oh, that blind man that was healed was never blind, this or that. That one who was paralyzed and now walks. Nobody refuted his miracles. No. These religious leaders, what they did was sadly refute Jesus Christ and his deity simply by basing what they were presenting to those around them according to their own legalism. These religious leaders had established a rigid and complex system of the Sabbath law. They were both oppressive and legalistic. It was a burden for the people. They had set up laws on how to observe the Sabbath. They had included 39 different categories of forbidden activities. Two present rabbis worked out the number of regulations imposed by this law of the Sabbath. 
And they arrived at the grand total of 1,521 regulations. Can you believe that? And that's why in verse 18 it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. The hatred. But Jesus responds in verse 17 and he says, my father is working until now and I am working. This is a verse that should comfort our soul because Psalm 121 says, the God who protects us, the God who watches over us does not slumber or sleep. God is a God that is active and this is what Jesus is talking about. He says, I have come to work and I have come to, to heal and to bring, to bring comfort the Sabbath in the Old Testament was given for God's people to focus on their relationship with God, rest from their labors, just as God did on the seventh day of creation, and to remember his work in creation and redemption. The religious leaders had set their eyes and hearts on man-made laws, which had thwarted the spirit of the law, placing themselves as lords of the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus... As the author of the law came to fulfill the law and to restore the law's purpose. This is why he says in Matthew 12, 8, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Two things that we learn through this passage. First of all, Jesus is the author of our eternal rest. Mark 2, 27, Jesus states, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What Jesus was confirming through this verse was that in the same way the Sabbath day was given so man could rest, could find solitude and silence before the presence of God from their labors, he too came to give rest from trying, from using our own works to attain eternal salvation. That's why in Matthew 11, as he spoke to the multitude, he said, if you're labored, if you're heavy burdened, come to me because I will make you rest. And I don't know what your relationship with God is, but what I want to tell you this morning, what Christ wants to tell you this morning, that he is the author of your eternal rest. Because of our sin and because of our separation with God, Christ came and gave his life. He carried our sin. He was buried and three days later he rose again. He's the only one that can give us life and life eternal. The second thing we learn is that Jesus is the author of my present rest. Our present rest. Are you living with peace and with the rest that God gives? Jesus encounters this man that he healed. Remember, this man didn't know what his name was. They asked him many times, what's his name? He didn't know because Jesus disappeared from the scene. But then he appeared. He looks at this man that he healed and he says, see, you are well. And then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is what it's all about. What Jesus was telling this man is, I healed you, not so that you can go back and live for yourself. No, no, I healed you so that you can live for me. We are not called to continue in the same place where Jesus took us out of. We're not called to continue sinning. Call it what you want, be it adultery or fornication or pornography or uh, greed, pride. Call it what you may. 
What Jesus is telling you, if I have healed you, my desire is for you to find my present rest every day and so that you may live for me. That you may not try with all of your might thinking that sin will give you that which only I can give. I love what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verses 9 to 11. He says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive. That word in the Greek speaks about being diligent, fervent, being speedy to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We're called to live for him. And I tell you, there's nothing more glorious. There's nothing more peaceful than being led by our Savior. That's why maybe you're fighting. Hopefully today you may find rest in him. I finished with this story years ago. I heard the story of a mom who had six kids. And she knew the importance of spending time with the Lord every morning, every day. And so she chose a corner in the living room of her house. She placed a rocker there. And that was the place where she was going to meet the Lord every day. Now, she had six kids. And so she began to teach her children. She said, listen, when mommy is sitting in that chair, nobody can bother her. I don't want anybody coming to ask questions. I don't want anybody fighting or yelling because mommy's not going to answer. Because mommy is talking to Christ. Those kids grew up. And so they began to interview them. And they interviewed one of the daughters. And the question was, what did you think when you saw your mom there in the corner every day? (laughs) She says, well, as I saw my mom in that corner every day, what I thought was, wow, that woman is at rest. That woman is at rest. Many of you have been fighting, trying to provoke things that you cannot provoke. Many of you maybe are full of bitterness towards Christ. What Christ is telling you this morning, let it go. Let it go. Allow me, Jesus is saying, to heal your soul and to enjoy my present rest and so that your life could be used by me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. So much in this passage. But Lord, we're thankful because it's through this book that we learn more about your character. And especially as we've gone through the book of John, we, we see, Lord, who you are. We thank you. Lord, I I pray that you may speak to people's hearts this morning. Many of the people seated in this auditorium or watching online need to respond to the questions John asked us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Are we willing to believe without miracles? Oh, but you've been so faithful in demonstrating evidence upon evidence of your truth. Lord, I pray that many this morning may 
may see birth in their hearts. Authentic faith, real faith. The faith that understands your grace, the faith that gives everything that they have. That faith that trusts in the power of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you speak to those who don't know you. That they won't leave this place until having a real relationship with you. Heal this point. We desire to also answer that second question. Are we willing for you to change our condition? Lord, come, work in us and through us. I pray for those who are suffering, Lord, this morning that you just provide the comfort that you only can provide. And we answer the third question, Lord. Are we willing for you to be our rest? Lord, I pray that we all this morning may leave this place understanding your power over time, over space, but your power over our indifference and that you may revive us this morning. We ask you for West Cabarrus Church, this testimony, use us, Lord. Send us out. Allow us to be heralds of your message to those who are sick. Lord, we want you to hear us. We want to be like you. We thank you. We pray all these things. In your name. Amen.